How's everybody doing? Right on, right on. Oh, my name's Sean Salata. Uh, I'm on staff here with H2O. Um, if I haven't met you before, um, it's good to see you this morning. Happy 4th of July weekend. Um, it, it's really cool to, to come together and celebrate. Um, and just remember, even um, as we as a nation are um, celebrating our, our freedoms and, and just the blessings that we have, um, that as Christians, just kind of like we've been saying this whole morning, that, that we're celebrating the fact that um, we are actually wanderers here, that, that we um, are immigrants to our own country because we have our citizenship in heaven. And so we're going to get into that a little bit this morning. But um, yeah, so this morning, actually, the, the way that we're going to dig into that is we are going to talk about crab legs. That's actually going to kind of be the, 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 the framework of our whole message. Um, I'm, I'm kidding, but we'll, we'll get there in a minute. So um, we've been going through this unfiltered series, right, um, here at H2O, and it's been built on this idea that, that God's people um, in the Psalms have been unfiltered just in their, um, in their thoughts, in their, their songs, their poems, their meditations um, about God and about life to God. Um, and, and we talk about the idea of being unfiltered because sometimes um, we as God's people today uh, can be the opposite of that. We can, we can try to filter what we say um, to God. We can try to get our thoughts kind of all straightened out and try to get all of our ducks in a row before we approach God um, when we see the model for us with his people in the Psalms is not to be that way at all, um, but to be unfiltered. And so... Uh, I feel like I have to open when, when I've studied like a piece of poetry, which is what the, the Psalms are. I have to be open and say that I'm actually not a huge fan of poetry, if I'm honest. Um, as, a, as an English major, um, I've had the, the opportunity to read a lot of good and a lot of not so good poetry. Um, but but the, one, the one thing that, that kind of centers me as I'm, as I'm going through the Psalms is this truth that poetry is kind of like... Crab legs. Um, so crab legs, right? I don't, I don't know how many fans there are of crab legs and seafood in general, but some of the best food that you will ever eat, right? It, it's soft. It's warm. It's a little sweet. If you, if you have it soaked in a bowl of clarified butter, it's just like, it's perfect. It's perfect. But there is this inherent problem with crab legs, right, is that they are literally armored against your enjoyment of them, right? They, they are protected against you eating them. Um, in fact, this picture up here um, is a photo from my dad. That's kind of where I inherited my enjoyment of crab legs. And I remember this one time. I don't really know why this sticks out to me so much, but um, this time we were at a seafood restaurant, and he ordered a great big plate of crab legs, and he actually drew blood, like opening up the crab legs so that he could eat. So, so what it was is that he paid someone, he paid someone, to injure himself to eat dinner, which, like, to some people, especially if you're not a big seafood fan, is probably kind of mind-boggling, right? Um, why would you go through all that trouble? But it's because what's inside um, is valuable. What's inside is good. Um, and the same is true of the Psalms. Uh, sometimes, I don't know if you've done this before, but, but I've opened up my Bible and I've looked at a Psalm and, and been like, okay, that's really pretty. Um, it talks about God a lot, um, but I don't I don't really understand what's happening here. But the, the more that you just dig into it uh, and, and honestly just kind of stare at it 
and, and try to get it to, to reveal what it has for you, um, it does, and it's really valuable. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. The same thing we've been doing um, the, this whole summer in the Psalms is just a, a verse at a time, a thought at a time, one after the other, to see kind of David's train of thought um, and, and what he's thinking about God. So um, I'm going to read. Today we're going to be in Psalm 138. Um, it'll be up on the screens behind me, and uh, it's also available in the, the Bibles in front of you um, or on the H2O app or your Bible app. So I'm going to go ahead and read it, and we'll pray, and we'll, we'll get into it. So Psalm 138 says, I give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart. Before the gods I sing your praise. I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. On the day I called, you answered me. My strength of soul, you increased. All the kings of the earth shall give you thanks, O Lord, for they have heard the words of your mouth, and they shall sing the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand delivers me. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. Let's pray. Father God, um, as we come before you um, just to with, with open hearts um, and open minds to, to hear what you have to say, uh, we just pray that you would speak. Um, we know that, that every time that we open your word, um, just seeking to hear from you, that you do speak. And so we just pray um, that, that our minds would be clear, that um, you would just kind of shut out the, the outside world for a minute um, and help us to hear from you. Um, and just that as a result, that we would be changed, that we would become more and more like your son, Jesus, um, and that uh, we would just have a deeper relationship with you um, and more joy in our own lives as a result. God, we love you. We thank you for what you've done for us on the cross. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so right off the bat in, in Psalm 138, there's this kind of confusing typical of poetry kind of statement, right? It says, I give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart. Yeah, that checks out. Uh, Before the gods, I sing your praise. What does that mean uh, exactly? We we know that the God of the Bible is actually like a jealous God, right? He says, you know, worship me and, and me only. I'm the only one that's actually worth your worship, and I want a relationship with you, and I don't want that relationship to be polluted by any other affections, and so when David says, I give you thanks before the gods, like in front of other gods, it seems confusing. Is David like rejecting that? Is he saying that he worships a, a bunch of gods? Well, no, he's not saying that. But in order to understand that, we need to know a little bit about David's life. Um, and we've been talking about David a ton um, throughout this series just because David um, is responsible for writing a lot of the Psalms, and he's a really important figure um, in, in the Bible. So we're going to talk a little bit more about David. Um, so, so we know the, the story of David with David and Goliath, right? He, he slays the giant Goliath. It's a huge victory for the, the people of Israel. Um, they're all really excited about that. And, and even King Saul, when he sees this happen, you know, he, he kind of surveys the scene. And he says, that kid David— whose son is that? I've, I want him. Get him for me. Um, and so they do, and he actually becomes uh, sort of like the, the court musician for King Saul. Um, and the story behind that is kind of interesting. When you're reading the whole thing in, in the scripture, um, you're, you're kind of in this place where you're waiting for the other shoe to drop, because what's going on in the background is Saul 
who's king of Israel, has actually already been rejected by God. He's still king, but he's been rejected as king by God. Whereas David is still, for all intents and purposes, a kid, uh, he actually is or is about to be anointed by God as the next king. So it's this weird situation where we know that God isn't a huge fan of Saul right now, and we know that David is uh, going to be king, but right now Saul is king and David is not. So you're like waiting. How is this all going to shake down? Um, and part of it has to do with the reason David was hired as a musician. See, Saul uh, started to fly into these like fits of rage. You, you know, he, w- he would get these in these moods. And when he did, it was David's job literally to like serenade him on the harp so that he would chill out and not kill anybody, um, w- which is like a bad character trait in a king, maybe. Um, but uh, eventually David grows in, in strength and in power uh, and becomes a, a warrior um, in the Israelite army. Uh, and, and his fame is so great and, and his ability is so great that, that eventually what happens is um, as they're coming back after this huge victory, you know, the, the Israelites just won this battle against the Philistines, their rivals. They're, they're really excited about it. Um, and the people are singing this kind of victory chant as they're coming back in. And they say, Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his ten thousands, right? You, you, can, you can imagine maybe the confusion um, in, in Saul's mind as the king. He's like, well, wait a minute. I'm supposed to be the best. Why is it then that they say that I kill my thousands, but they're like really super excited about David? I'm the king. And, and his gears start turning a little bit. And he says, I already know that I've been rejected. If I want to stay king, if I want my son and his son and his son to be king after me, I've got to do something about this David character. And, and so that's what he begins to do. He, he begins to set these plots in motion to try to kill David. It gets so bad that David leaves the nation of Israel, his home where he grew up, where people worship the, the God that he loved, he leaves. Um, and, and he actually goes, among other places, he goes um, into asylum in the nation of Philistia, the land of the Philistines. Okay, so you can imagine, as we get back to this psalm, where it says, before the gods, in front of the gods, I sing your praise. You could almost imagine like David looking out the window or, or, you know, being in town, wherever he's at, in the nation of the Philistines, seeing the temple and saying, I'm surrounded by foreign things, a people I don't know, a God I don't worship that I don't even believe is real, um, people who maybe some of them I've seen in battle and have tried to kill me. Um, And in the midst of this, in the face of these gods, I sing the praise of the one true God. And so what we see in, in this first line is that, that David is faced with adversity. Um, and he's faced with adversity against his faith even. And, and what he's saying is, I will praise you anyway. And as Christians, we're actually, we've talked a little bit about it, we're sort of in a foreign land as well. Uh, we're not in the same situation where we go to war with people who don't agree with us, thankfully. Um, but we, we do recognize that um, sometimes in our culture, people value different things than we do. They value different things than what the Bible says. Um, they, they do different things or, or think different things are right. Um, and so we find ourselves in a lot the same way in this sort of foreign land, uh, just like David did. And I've got to stop here for a minute because I think it can be easy to say at this point to just point at David and say, okay, we have this awesome example, King David. So go, just go be like him. See how David was good? Go, be good like him. All right, it's dismissed. Let's pray. Um, 
but I think it's important to acknowledge that a lot of the things that, that we challenge one another to do here at H2O, um, a lot of those things are, are difficult. Like, this is hard stuff that, that we're getting out of the Bible and that we're seeking to do. Um, when we call one another to, to love people well, uh, to, to share the gospel with other people who don't know Jesus, uh, to disciple people, to, to come alongside people who have believed in Jesus, and to try to, to walk with them and help them grow closer to him, none of that stuff is easy. Um, and, and neither is this idea of worshiping uh, before the gods, so to speak. And so the question becomes, how do we do this? Uh, how do we take those difficult challenges and act on them with confidence? How do we sort of worship with this full heart in full view uh, of everyone around us? Um, and, and David spends the rest of the psalm actually answering these questions. And that's going to be our, our big idea where we kind of camp out. Um, so that this big idea that, that David unpacks for us is that knowing God's character, knowing his character lets us worship fully in a foreign land. And so David goes right into it. He supports this, this first line with a bunch of reasons of how he's able to do what he's doing, this crazy thing. Um, so he gives bold reasons for his worship. And the first one is God's love. Okay, and, and I hear you all just nodding off right now, right? Because especially if you've grown up in the church, and, and even as Americans, it's kind of like a, an American thing. You know, we hear this all the time. God loves you. Jesus loves you. God loves you, and he has a good plan for your life, Right? It's all true. It's all so good and, and a truth that we should push into. Um, but we've got to acknowledge that we can take that for granted um, for a lot of different reasons, whether we've grown up hearing it, uh, whether we think maybe that we deserve God's love. Um, no, matter, no matter what the deal is, it, it can become this sort of cheesy, trite, kind of like lackluster truth for us. Um, but the one thing that I think we have to remember about God's love is it actually isn't automatic. We can kind of feel that way, right? That, well, if I have to love everybody, if God tells me I got to love everybody, well, then God obviously has to love everybody because he's higher than us and he's the one giving us the rules. And that's actually not the case. One of the things that makes God's love so impressive and so big is that it's actually in spite of what we as people have done to not deserve it. The, the Bible has this verse, and it says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So we as people, if you didn't know, are, are in this situation where we all have this sin in our life, right? Um, God from the beginning intended us to be in relationship with him. Um, he intended to, to lead us and to rule us well, um, and, and for us to respond in, in faith and joy to that leadership, and for us to have our best lives because we were following God. That's the way that he intended it to be. Um, but, but all of us, in big ways or in small ways, um, ha have kind of walked away from God's um, desires for our life, from God's leadership. And, and essentially what we've done, if we think about it, if we're honest, is we've said, God, I understand that you've said that, that you want to lead me for your glory and your good um, and that you know best, but God, I, I really think that I know best. And so thank you for the offer, but I'm going to go and I'm going to do what I want to do and what I think will be best, right? We can, we can all think of those times where we've had that friction with what God says and, and we've chosen to do what we think will be best for us. And what the Bible says 
while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, while we were in the middle of doing that, while we were in the midst of our most rebellious toward God, not only did God not punish us for that, but he actually did the total opposite. Um, He didn't just do nothing. He actively gave his best gift, the the greatest act of, of love that he could possibly show in the moment of our greatest rebellion is what God did. God's love is so huge that, that while we were walking away from him, he gave Jesus, um, that he sacrificed his son um, so that we could be in relationship with him. And, and so as we think about God's love, as we see the, the t-shirts and, and, you know, we read it and we hear it bandied about God's love, this is the kind of love that we're talking about, a love that, that's so big that it's in spite uh, of ourselves, in spite of every, um, every impulse that we have to run away from it. It's just like we sang earlier, no matter how far I run, you are with me. And that is God's love. And it's the love that David remembers that allows him to worship. So David remembers God's love. Um, and next he moves on actually to God's faithfulness. Um, and, and I think when we, we talk about faithfulness, we think about it a lot in the context maybe of like marriage or relationships, um, you know, to be faithful to your spouse, to be um, faithful to people. Um, but really a little more broadly, it just means to be a, a person of your word and, and to be a person of integrity, to do the things um, that you say you're going to do, to do the things that you know uh, are right. And, and so that's what faithfulness is. And, and David is remembering this about God. And I think the, the big way that we can see that is that being in a foreign land like David was and like we are, um, lets us see God's rivals fall short. Um, and so in David's time, uh, God's big rival was Dagon the fish god, right? And if it sounds ridiculous, it, it is ridiculous. So in, in those times, um, a, a lot of the, the gods that the peoples worship were kind of based on like their way of life or, or something that, that they valued, something that was important to them. And the Philistines came from the sea and they colonized the coasts. And so their god was this like fish man thing. You can look it up. There are pictures of it. It's kind of interesting. But anyway, th- this is their God. Um, and so this one time, the, the Philistines and the Israelites were in this battle, right? Like they always are. They're constantly fighting. Um, and the, the Israelites do this weird thing, and they think, if we bring the Ark of the Covenant with us, we're totally going to win this battle for sure. God won't let us lose. Um, and so they, they bring it to the battle, and they get defeated. The, the Philistines put the smack down, and, and, and they lose. And, and so what happens, what, what was done in those times, is that um, when you defeated a rival nation, what that meant is you were better than them, and your God was better than your God. And so what you did is you stole their God from them, and you took it back to your place and put it in your God's temple so that it was like paying homage, right? And so the, the Philistines were kind of confused they, they confused the Ark of the Covenant for God, you know, like the other nations do. And so they, they stole this Ark of the Covenant um, and brought it back with them to the, the temple of Dagon, the fish god. Um, and, the, and they put it in here, and they say, wow, we're great. We won this battle. Let's go to sleep, whatever. So they leave. They come back, and the statue of Dagon is knocked over in front of the Ark of the Covenant as if to be paying homage to the ark. So the, the priests look at it for a minute and they say, well, that's, that's confusing. We'll just kind of put this up and pretend nothing happened. And so they set it back up and they leave. Um, the next morning, as if to emphasize the point, like just a little bit more, 
um, they come in and the statue is knocked over and the head is broken off and the hands are broken off. And, and so what this means in ancient times, this is a sign of submission. Oftentimes they would draw like kings that they defeated with their, their hands broken off and their heads broken off. It's kind of graphic. But God is, is communicating this message pretty clearly, I would say, right? That he is not in submission to Dagon, the fish god that is not real. Um, that, that Dagon and the people of the Philistines are submitted to him, right? And so the, the Philistines have kind of had enough of this. And on top of that, they start to get plagued to really like drive the message home. And they say, okay, this is too much. We're done with this. We need to get the Ark of the Covenant out of here. Um, and so what they do is they, they saddle it up to um, a bunch of cows, and here's what they say. They say, okay, here's, here's how we know if our God is still cool or not and, and what's going on. Um, if, if it goes straight back to Israel, you know, we're not going to drive it or anything. We're just going to let the cows take it. If it goes back to Israel, that means that the God of Israel was kind of behind all of this, and that's scary for us. But if the cows kind of go this way or go that way or just kind of chew some grass or whatever, then it was just a coincidence, and our God is still sweet. Yeah. So, in fact, they actually stack the deck a little bit. What they do is the cows had just given birth, and so they take their kids, and they kind of put them over here, right, so that, that the cows will go this way, and they can say, well, it was just a coincidence. Dagon is awesome. Um, but that's not what happens, as you may guess. They have the cows over here. They got everything ready, and the ark goes straight back to Israel because Dagon is not able to keep his promises. He's not real. God is able to keep his promises. He is faithful. Um, and, and so this is, we see God's rival fall short. Um, in the modern day, it's the same thing. Uh, we, we talk a lot about this in church, I, I think, but um, we don't worship statues as much anymore. Um, but anything that we set up as a rival for our affection to God becomes this idol, becomes a rival for God's affection. Money, relationships, uh, our work life, our comfort, you know, our, our kind of self-image and, and how we think about ourselves, these are all things that we can set up as idols. And the funny thing, as we acknowledge often, is that those things are not inherently bad, right? God uses those things to bless us, and holistically, he uses all those things to point us upward, to point us to him. Um, but, but when we make those things an idol, when we make those things a God, um, they're not able to support us. They fail us. I, I think it's a Dave Ramsey quote. I, I should have looked it up, but it's that, like, money, yeah, money is a, um, it, it's a, a bad master, but a good servant. It's a good servant, but, but a bad master. When these things are in service to us, um, they enhance our life. But when we serve them instead, they're, they're inanimate. They, they don't lead us well. They lead us into bad places. And so this is God's faithfulness, that, that where the things around us fall short, where the rivals of God's fall short, he keeps his promises. He supports us. He loves us. And so getting back to the text a little bit, David, you know, he's, he's worshiping God. He's able to do this because of God's love. He's able to do it because of God's faithfulness. Um, and finally, what he says here, if we go back to the text, he, he says, For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. And what David is saying is that, that God is able. You know, so he is exalted. He's lifted up. He's set up on high his name himself. Um, and his word. He succeeded in doing something that most people 
probably all people, never really succeed in doing, even though we try. You know, we often try to, to lift ourselves up as important or lift ourselves up maybe even as most important. Um, but we are, we're never really completely successful, and we, we feel that um, when, we, when we try to do that in those times. But God has been successful. He's able, he's sovereign, and he has succeeded in lifting himself on high. I think one of the best ways to, to kind of to remember that and to, and to sort of be humbled is to think about the ways that, that we have failed to, to lift our own names on high. And so I'm going to share with all of you a time that I failed to lift myself on high. So how many people know the musical Hamilton in here? Anybody? Okay, a couple people. Um, it's actually kind of appropriate. Um, it's a musical about the historical figure Alexander Hamilton, one of America's founding fathers, right? So it, it's appropriate. Happy Fourth of July. Um, but anyway, it, it's uh, really popular in, in the Salada household. Um, we've enjoyed it for a long time, and I think maybe about a year ago, um, my wife and uh, my sister-in-law and, and some of their friends were actually recording covers of these songs, and they had some like some good recording equipment, and, and these covers of these songs sounded really, really, really good. Um, and I felt a little left out of the reindeer games, maybe. Um, and you got to understand, I enjoy singing, actually. It's something that I really like to do. It's a lot of fun, you know, in the car, at my computer. It's fun. But nobody wants to listen to me sing. It bums me out a little bit, but, you know, I, I understand. Nobody wants to listen to me sing, but, but I do enjoy it. So I'm sitting at home by myself one night, um, you know, just kind of listening to Hamilton, doing some other stuff, and, and, and the song comes on. For, for those of you who know it, um, it's actually sung by a female. It's the song Burn, um, and, and it's like a really, really powerful song. You know, maybe some of you know it a little bit, and, um, and I'm listening to it a little bit, and I'm, I'm thinking, you know, if I lowered this like just a little bit and, you know, kind of played with it a little bit, I might actually be able to sing this song. No, I can definitely, this is going to be, this is going to be great. This is going to go great. Um, and, and so I, I set up the recording uh, stuff and, and I get the backtrack going, right? You know, this is legit. Um, and I've got it in my ear so I can sing along and I can hear it. And, and I do a couple takes or whatever. And I'm like, okay, this is, this is good. This is going to be it. Um, and, and so I record this and I, I text it to my wife. And the, the hubris of the situation was not actually that, that I had even done this in the first place. It was that I sent off the recording without even listening to it. Yeah, yeah. So, so I send off this recording, and I'm waiting, and I'm kind of waiting, and I'm waiting a little longer. And um, I think, you know, while I'm waiting, maybe, maybe I'll just throw this thing on, and, I, and I'll listen to it real quick. And the look that must have crossed my face as I listened to this recording and realized just how bad it was... I, I wish I had been there to see it. I was there, and I, it felt terrible. feels bad. So, so I, text, I text Jessica in a panic, and I'm like, abort mission. Have you listened to it yet? Do not listen to it. Are you around anyone? Don't listen to it around anyone under any circumstances. Delete it. Forget that it happened. Um, yeah, it's a bad scene. And so that was a time that I attempted very poorly to lift myself up on high and didn't really succeed. Now, in fairness, when, when I was thinking about this story to tell it for, for this teaching, my wife didn't even remember it. And I, <laughs> and I remember at the time, she was very supportive. I'm like, oh, it doesn't really sound that bad. It's like, yeah, I know, but you know, and I know the, the truth. So, 
we are not very good at, at lifting ourselves up, but God is. And not only that, but God is also worthy. Um, there are tons of examples throughout the Bible, um, if you look at it, where just tons of miracles, ways that God protects his people, he fights for his people. Um, there are a few examples of, of the way that, that God maintains his presence and his word throughout recorded human history, even like into the modern day. So I'm just going to rattle off a few of them. So the Israelites, right? God's people were constantly, they're being conquered, they're being assimilated um, into empires, but, but God exalted himself and his people were never completely destroyed. He always saved a remnant. The early church was persecuted by the Roman Empire, um, being told by the Jewish authorities in the Roman Empire, hey, you can't talk about Jesus. But God exalted himself, and they did anyway, and and the church flourished, proclaiming the good news of Jesus. The Bible was actually forbidden to be translated into common languages for a time in the Middle Ages, but God exalted himself, and people risked their lives to translate the Bible into English and into other languages so that people could understand the gospel. Um, In Nazi Germany, they actually, kind of a little-known fact, they influenced the churches also in Germany to to preach this crazy gospel that doesn't look anything like Jesus' sacrifice. They they preached this, this violent, abusive gospel. But God exalted himself, and there were faithful churches that continued to preach the true gospel. Many nations today face the same situations where uh, they're persecuted, they're killed or punished for believing Jesus, and they're forced underground, but God still exalts himself, and the underground church flourishes still. Actually, there, there's this kind of interesting thing, th- this very specific way that, that God has exalted the Bible, his enduring words to us. Um, God has maintained the Bible as a singularly consistent book of ancient history. So um, we were, we're going to take a look at this graph. It's going to look like a lot. Don't worry. I'm going to explain it. <laughs> so, so some scholars like to challenge the Bible's um, authenticity, its authority, and they, they say that the book that you have now um, has been altered. You know, they've kind of played this game of telephone, and, and what we've got in our hands is not the same as what was originally written. Um, in actuality, the, the Bible is more trustworthy source material for history than much of what we know about um, like ancient Greco-Roman history. It's more trustworthy than some of the stuff that we know about Caesar, some of the stuff that we know um, like about the Iliad and the Odyssey. The Bible is actually more trustworthy. So you, you may or may not know that the Bible, um, our English Bible is translated from Greek and Hebrew, right? And, and we get that Greek and Hebrew from these really old manuscripts, okay? And so if you were a historian and you looked at the manuscript and you said, I want to know if this says the same thing, is what was originally written. What might you do? Well, you would, you would probably go back to the first one that was written and just, you know, do one of these, right? In the beginning was the word. In the beginning was the word. Okay, they're the same. Great, that's awesome. But we don't have any of the originals, which could be a little bit of a problem. So if we don't have the originals, what might you do next? Well, I would go to the, the next oldest one, whatever is the oldest thing that I have, and I would see, are they the same? Um, and, and so that's what historians do. The, the closer your document that you have in your hand is to when the original was written, and the more copies that you have, with more confidence can you say, what I've got in my hand right now is the same thing as what was originally written. So let's look at this big old graph. Really, all that you need to know, see the, see the New Testament up there um, and how big the red bar is and how little the um, orange bar is, it, it beats out by a long shot 
the next even closest second document. We have so many copies of the Bible, and many of them are so, so close to the time when they were very first written by the apostles um, and God's people that wrote them down for his people. And so what it means is that we absolutely can trust that what we have in our Bibles is the same thing that was written down thousands of years ago because God has been in this situation. God has been in the protecting of his word, making sure that what people have is what he meant for them to have so that they could hear about the gospel, so that they could read what Jesus has done and they could be in relationship with him. God cares about his word, and so he protected it. And so God has, has exalted his word in this way. He's protected it. He's maintained it. And his central message in that word is actually also his greatest show of ability. If we talk about God being able, about God being sovereign, his greatest show of power was on the cross. It was the gospel itself. I want you to think about this for a minute. So the, the gospel is, is justice and mercy together, right? Have you ever known anybody else who is able to do justice and to be merciful in the same act at the same time? Normally, it's either justice or it's mercy, right? You do justice and, and you, you give people what they deserve, right? Or you do mercy and, and you do something good for somebody when they didn't deserve it. You can't do both. But God has succeeded in doing just that. On the cross, God did justice and mercy at the same time. He, he meted out justice for sins. He punished sin, but he also gave mercy to anybody who would trust in him. And so God is, is so able. He, he's able through the way that he's preserved um, his word on the earth, and he's able through what he did on the cross. And so getting back to, to David, right? He's worshiping God. He knows God's love. He knows God's faithfulness. He knows that God is able, and it supports the way that he's able to worship. But this would be enough, like, for me personally. Like, awesome, amen, let's go. Um, but David keeps going even farther. He says, God is even better than that. God is so good that, that he will eventually convince the leaders of the world, he will convince the world that he is true, that he is glorious. You know, what the, the scripture says is that all the kings of the earth shall give you thanks for they've heard the words of your mouth, that, that you're wise, they shall sing the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. They've seen how glorious you are. And, and for us, if, if the kings of the world will eventually be convinced, then we know that the gospel message, uh, it's not weak. It's something that we can wear. It's something that we can share with, with confidence. Um, it, it's not this thing that we have to hide when it, whenever somebody challenges it. Uh, we see the, the strength of our God. And again, this isn't based on nothing. It, it's based on God's character. Um, it, it says here in the scripture that um, for though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. That even though God is so glorious, like we've been talking about this whole time, that he actually stoops down to see the lowly. And that's God's message to, to us today. If we're feeling lowly, if we're feeling beaten down by the world, by our circumstances, whatever the case may be, God's message in his word is I see you. I know what you're dealing with. I've been there. I lived on the earth, and, and I've been tempted. I've been there, and, and I'm, I'm with you. I see you. But it's funny. The, the same message for those who are downtrodden 
is also for those who are lifted up and who are prideful. God's message to the prideful is also, I see you too. And the Bible says that God holds the, the prideful, what, what it says is the haughty at, at arm's length, right? And we don't want that. I'm here to tell you today that you do not want God to hold you at arm's length. You want to be in relationship with God. And, and part of the way that that happens is laying down your pride, laying down your stuff, and coming um, just with open hands to God. So David, David starts to, to wrap up his thoughts now. You know, with a God that's so good, he's so loving, so faithful, so able, and not only just for himself, but for everybody, um, David starts to conclude his thoughts. And he says, with this mighty God, he's able to worship him fully, and he's able to entrust himself to him. So listen what he says. Now that, he's, now that he's proven that God is so good, he says, though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies because you're powerful. Your right hand delivers me. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me because he's faithful. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. It's so strong and it's so good. Do not forsake the work of your hands. Please protect me. And so we see that because David knows who God is, he's able to worship him. So how do we respond? And I mean, I think ultimately that's a, it's a matter of, of getting before God and asking him, you know, what he has for us as a, as a result of, of what he said in his word. Um, but I have a few thoughts that, that I want to leave us with. The, the first one is that knowing God, um, remembering him, like Brian talked about a, a few weeks ago, like remembering God and, and celebrating, it exalts God in our own lives. It lifts him up in our own lives. And what it does is it naturally redirects all of kind of like our life stuff in service to God. You know, when we're not remembering God, all of our junk, you know, all, all of the routines, all of the, the bills, the, the job, the, the kids, the, the stuff that I have to do, the meetings, it all crowds or threatens to crowd who God is and, and what he has for you. You know, he's built each of us for something. Right? He, he's built each of us to do something um, in a way that nobody else can do it. But when we're crowded with all of this stuff, we're distracted from that. Right? But lifting God up and remembering who he is naturally puts all of those things in subjection and in service to him so that we can remember what he's called us to and so that we can go forth and be faithful and do it. Second, if we want to know God better, knowing his character keeps us from being surfacey. Right? Um, you, you never go up to somebody and say, oh, I really love this thing. And they say, oh, well, why? Ah, but, you know, because, right? Um, we, we give reasons. We think about the character of what it is that we love. And so if we want to know God better, knowing his character keeps us from being surfacy. And, and finally, um, if you're here and you're just, you're giving the church a chance, um, you're checking us out, we're glad you're here, and, and I hope that, that what you've seen this morning um, is that God is good. Like, I think a lot of times we, we can get on the defensive as Christians when we're talking to you about um, our faith, and we can feel like we've got to answer a lot of objections and stuff like that. And, that. and that's good. We should do that. But it's also just so important to lift up God for who he is and how good he is. Um, and, and that's what I'm here to say to you today. I don't have to, I don't have to speak for God. I don't have to, you know, here he is. Look at his word. See how he is. He's so good. He's loving. He's faithful. He's able. And, and I just want to set that God before you this morning and, and 
and hope and ask that, that you would give your life to him. So um, as, as the band comes forward, um, we're going we're gonna to pray um, and move into a time of, of communion. So, Father God.